Now, as many of you know, um, Timothy Keller passed away this last week, on Friday, I think. Um, and of all the pastors who have influenced me in my life through books and uh, sermons and podcasts, he's probably been the one who's influenced me most. In fact, before any of that happened this week, I was listening to one of uh, his sermon podcasts, and as usual, he was making some really great points. Uh, in fact, I have to sometimes be careful about listening to Tim Keller because I feel incredibly inadequate when it's all said and done. But he has such poignant reminders. One of the things that he was talking about in this particular sermon was kind of looking back to how people have approached Christianity during different generations. And he looked back to like my generation and earlier, and he said the compelling question when people were pursuing or considering Christianity was this, is it true? They wanted to know, is it true? They wanted you to prove the facts of the Christian faith, which is why probably one of the more popular books written during my college days was written by Josh McDowell entitled, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Anybody remember that book? Yeah, books like that were really common during that time because they were answering that question, is it true? And that was actually a pretty common tool for evangelism, so that if people had questions, you might say, hey, well, read this book. It does a really good job makes a compelling case for, for Christianity. But he goes on and talks about how that question has changed in recent generations. It, it's no longer the question, is it true? Now the question is, does it work? Will it restore my marriage? Will it help me in my struggle with anger or anxiety? Does it work? And those who ask that question are typically looking for some kind of religious experience, some kind of encounter with God that makes their faith seem real, kind of a faith that can be felt. Does it work? But I think both of these questions, although they're both good and, and, and helpful, each of them in their own right are inadequate because our faith is much more than a collection of facts. It's much more than an intellectual pursuit. But at the same time, it's much more than a feeling as well. I think there's a combination here. I think it's both real and it's true. And we need to see both of those things. See, Christianity is not just some religious philosophy or some pragmatic approach to a respectable life. It's about a relationship with a person, a very real person who is full of grace and what? Truth. Full of grace and truth. One who has entered into the reality of our everyday lives. You see, Jesus Christ, as we know, set aside his divine rights so that he might fully experience our human condition. And yet he did so without compromising his divine nature. We looked at this when we went through the book of Hebrews. And we learned that he is the radiance of God's glory. The exact representation of his divine nature. We also learned that, that Jesus, having entered into our human condition, was tempted in all things just as we are, yet without sin. You see, it wasn't easy. For Jesus, as he entered into the reality of our suffering, 
in order to make a way for our redemption. And so as we look at our passage this morning, let me urge you, let me remind you that this is not just an intellectual exercise, nor is it the pursuit of an emotional encounter. It's both. It's pointing to what is true and what is real. Facts that can be felt deep inside your soul. It's pointing to the person in who, to whom we entrust our souls, as we will see in our passage this morning, especially, especially in seasons of suffering where we absolutely need that most. So before we open up God's word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we don't take this lightly. We believe these are God-breathed truths, spoken directly from your heart to ours. And so, Lord, when we open up your word, we want to open up our hearts. We want to open up our minds. We want to allow you to speak these truths into the deepest parts of our souls. Father, help us to, to see the truths, but also feel, to know, to experience the richness of all that you intend. And the only way that that's possible is if it comes through the work of your Holy Spirit present with us even now in this moment among your people. So God, we invite you. We open our hearts to you. May you speak clearly. Your servants are listening. We pray this in your name. Amen. If you would turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, we'll pick up where we left off last. In uh, verse 12, so 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Uh, Peter continues in verse 12 saying, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation, just like we just sang about. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of the glory and of God rests on you. As we get started, I want, I want to make the point that it's really necessary when we open God's word that we don't breeze past what seems to be insignificant words like Beloved. Beloved. It's a term of endearment. It's, it's a word of sincere inf uh, affection. And, and it tells us, it gives us insight to that heartfelt connection between Peter and his audience. See, these are people that he cares about. Those for whom he is deeply concerned. Because he knows they are going through some really dark and difficult times. And so he reminds them, beloved, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal among you as if something strange were happening to you. And in some ways, I think this is really comforting to, to hear what's written here because Peter's audience, as we read this, is just like us. They, they experience suffering just like we do. And they want to know what we want to know. Why? Why is this happening? 
What did I do to, to deserve this? And Peter is helping them reframe that question by, by suggesting that maybe a better question should be, why not? If the Savior we worshiped suffered for our sake, and we know he did, why would we be exempt from suffering for his? Why not? Whoever said that a righteous life in the midst of a wicked world was going to be easy and trouble-free? That's never a promise that you see in Scripture. But that doesn't mean at the same time that we live this life of of misery and, and discouragement. After all, the suffering of Christ didn't end in defeat, did it? Instead, the agony of his suffering is what ultimately led to our salvation. God took the greatest evil and accomplished our highest good. And this miraculous transformation that we see being put on display in the life of Christ is still what is actively at work in us today. Peter says this fiery trial has the power to refine your faith. He says it comes upon you for testing, which is interesting, but it's actually very consistent with what he said earlier in chapter 1 when he says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being made more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ." So this fiery ordeal is like a a furnace that refines precious metals. It it removes the impurities and enhancing the the true beauty of what remains. And Peter's saying that, that suffering can do the very same things in our life as well. It's a refining fire that, that binds us to the one to whom we belong. As I've mentioned before, I like to collect knives. And one of my favorite things about knives is learning about the metals that they are made of, the hardness, the the corrosion resistance, and all the different things that go into crafting and forging a knife. I actually don't have one of these, but one of my all-time favorites, someday perhaps, is what's called Damascus steel. I've given you a a picture of that up here. That's beautiful, isn't it? And it's made by actually taking layers of steel stacked upon each other, forging it together, and then when it's shaped out, it creates this beautiful design. I think that may be some of the beauty that we see in the midst of our suffering because our suffering binds our heart with the one who has suffered for us. It's part of what it means to be united with Christ when the layers of our life are forged together with his. Because we know about this, because we talk about it often, how the the layer of his victory over sin removes the the power of sin's control in our life. The layer of uh, who we are in our new creation life made possible because of the power of his resurrection. And here, Peter's pointing to the layer of our suffering for his sake, which instead causes, uh, establishes and strengthens our faith in him. This is how these, these layers of our life are forged together with his, and it creates something beautiful. 
That's why Peter says, but rejoice that you share in the sufferings of Christ. Much like we see with Peter and John in Acts 5.41 when they say they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Because remember, Peter's audience is being rejected by a society because of their commitment to biblical truths. Their faith is seen as a threat to the social norm. And and although it looks very different from us, there are things that are also very similar. The fact of the matter is, it's still not easy to do the right thing in a world that has gone wrong. Choosing to remain pure in your relationship when everyone is just living together. Giving priority to your family at the expense of your career. Fighting for your marriage instead of filing for divorce. Living out of the identity of who God made you to be instead of the person you choose to be. And so it may look a little different, but faithfully following Jesus has never been the path of least resistance. Every single day, we face a myriad of opportunities for compromise. And your commitment to biblical truth will always, always, always put you in conflict with the social norm. Like Peter and John, you will suffer for the sake of his name when you choose to do what is right. But Peter reminds us there. He says, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of God's glory rests on you. And this, don't miss, this is an amazing statement when you start to unpack what is being said here because it ties us to incredible events that took place in the Old Testament. He's using the very same language. For example, in Exodus chapter 24, verse 16, it says, the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud, God's presence resting on Mount Sinai. And then in Exodus 40, verse 34, it says, and then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled or it rested on the tabernacle. Peter is pulling from these amazing, incredible, powerful appearances of God's presence in the Old Testament. And he's saying, the very same presence rests on you in the midst of your suffering. He's with us. He's not against us. He won't leave us or forsake us. God says in Isaiah 43, one of my favorite passages, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God has always and still does have the power to take our deepest pain and turn it around into our highest good because his presence rests on us in the midst of our suffering. 
that he will use our trials to refine our faith, forging our life into the very image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. There is nothing more beautiful than that. Look at how he continues in verse 15. Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Now, I think this is where Peter, knowing his audience and knowing the audiences of everything that would, would happen beyond that, that he needs a clarification here. Because sometimes our suffering is not the result of our righteousness. Sometimes it's a result of our sin. So he says, make sure that none of you are suffering as a murderer, a thief, an, an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. And anytime I run across a list like this in Scripture, it intrigues me, right? Why did he choose these particular things? Because I don't know that the audience of this letter is any different than us. Because as, as we read this, probably much like them, we might think murderer, okay, good, definitely haven't done that, right? Uh, thief, I think I'm okay there too. I'm not an evildoer, but, oh, wait a minute. Troublesome meddler? I mean, that's almost unfair, right? I mean, who, who's not guilty of that one? Haven't we all tried to kind of interject our influence in a situation that's really not our responsibility, maybe trying to manipulate things to accomplish something that might benefit us? I mean, who in the world is not guilty of that? Maybe that's the point. I think the list is not there to prove our innocence. It's to reveal our guilt. Because we're, when we're in the midst of suffering, it's easy to blame everything else that is happening around us. And Peter is saying, oh, but please don't miss the opportunity to look within us. Because sometimes sin can make our suffering worse. For example, you may be suffering because of ridicule and rejection, whether you're in your job or in your marriage or in any kind of situation. That's legitimate suffering, right? But we can make our suffering worse by holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness towards those people. It's like drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. We are making our suffering worse. Or sometimes we make our suffering worse by trying to avoid suffering. If we suffer from financial insecurity, we might ease our pain by taking what doesn't belong to us. If we suffer from anxiety, we might strive for control or comfort. We can make our suffering worse by taking the easy way out in order to avoid what is hard. And there will always be consequences for our sins. Christians have no exemption on this. So, so don't overlook the value of self-examination. Peter says very clearly, make sure. Take a long look. Examine your heart and don't just assume you're the innocent victim. I love the, the prayer of David when it comes to this kind of a humble heart before the Lord when he says in Psalm 139 verse 23, search me, O God, 
Know my heart. Try me. Know my anxious thoughts. See, see if there be any wicked way in me. And the reason he's asking God to do that is because he doesn't want to miss something on his own. Lord, show me. Lead me in your everlasting way. Because as Peter points out, suffering presents a unique opportunity to glorify God. He says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, for it is to glorify God in this name. In this name. In what name? In your identity as a Christian. Your alliance, your allegiance to the name of Christ. Living in uncompromising faith that points to the, the purity and sufficiency of God's grace. Knowing that we can lose everything, and I do mean everything this world has to offer. But our soul can be completely, and I mean completely, satisfied with Jesus. That's why Jeremy Camp sings that great line when he says, You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. Look at how Peter continues in verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will be the outcome of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Now, I think we have to be really careful as we consider what Peter is saying here. Because as Christians, we know that God has taken all the judgment for our sins upon the cross. So on one hand, as we just talked about, Christians are not exempt from suffering the consequences of our sinful choices. God will purify his people through trials and tribulations, some of which we bring upon ourselves. He will discipline his children within the household of God. But, and don't miss this, he will not punish us for our sins. And here's why. When Jesus took our judgment upon the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. Which means all the punishment, not some, all the punishment that we deserved was placed on him. And so the judgment Peter is referring to here is different. It's a judgment of truth that is real. We know there are lots of opinions of his people. Because in our world today, we know there are lots of opinions of what is true, Right? I've got my truth, you've got your truth, but God says there is only one truth, and that truth should be upheld within the household of God. That truth is ultimately the standard by which God judges the world. That's why our commitment to biblical truth is so vitally important, and it's also why our compromise is so incredibly costly. It sends the wrong message. 
We must be willing to endure suffering for doing what is right. For the sake of our witness and the truth of God being upheld within the household of God. Judgment begins with a household of God. We uphold the truth of his word. But it ends with Jesus. Because everyone. Everyone is ultimately accountable to him. He will judge, as we said earlier in chapter five, he, chapter four, he will judge the living and the dead. And if we, as for the sake of righteousness, endure difficult times, how much greater the punishment for those who do wrong? I think that's the point of what Peter is saying when he quotes that proverb. Because if the perseverance of the saints is so perilous, if if suffering for the sake of righteousness leads to salvation, what will become of the sinner who is living in rebellion? Because we know, as the household of God, that we have been rescued from the judgment of sin's curse. And as we just sang about on that day, We will be set free from the world and the sin that has enslaved it. 2 Corinthians 4.17, in that day, our suffering will be exchanged for eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Like a mother who holds that newborn child, we will forget the pain because we are overwhelmed by the beauty. And in that day, our suffering will end. But for those who've rejected Jesus, this is where suffering begins. They now take on the judgment of the cross they rejected, eternally bearing the penalty of sin's curse, separated from God, without hope of redemption. Oh, how much worse that suffering will be. So then, Peter says, those who suffer according to God's will should be, should be committed, should commit themselves to the faithful creator and continue to do good. Knowing that, that Jesus is the one who ultimately has the, the final word, we entrust our souls to him. We uphold the banner of truth. We suffer for the sake of righteousness. We continue to do what is right and good. We refuse to take the easy way out. The cost is too great for the testimony of the church. As 1 Peter says, so that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's why. That's why it's important. So even though none of us want to invite suffering into our lives, Peter helps us see how to endure suffering with hope, which doesn't mean that we have all the answers and have complete understanding as to why things are happening the way they are. In fact, there are probably some in this room this morning who are thinking to themselves, then why does my suffering continue? And I don't have a great answer. We don't always know what that answer is, but here's the key. We do always know what it's not, okay? Listen to what Tim Keller says here. This is so good. Don't miss it. He says, it can't be that God doesn't love us. 
It can't be that he's indifferent and detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it upon himself. And so we may not know what it is, what reason it's happening, but we know why it's not. So as we close, I want us to be reminded of the sanctifying work of our suffering. We live in a broken world plagued by sin's curse. And God leaves us in this world knowing that what it produces in us is far better, don't miss this, far better than the comfortable and easy life we think we want. Our trials can confirm and strengthen our faith. They, they bind our heart to our suffering Savior. They bring glory to his faithful and sustaining grace. They remind us that we're not self-sufficient, that we were created to be dependent upon God, and not only that, interdependent upon one another. Suffering exposes the places of our self-righteousness, believing that our good behavior somehow exempts us from difficult circumstances. Suffering loosens our grip on this world, allowing us to, to release our hold on what is temporary so that we can cling to what is eternal. Suffering allows us to have compassion for other people so that we comfort them in the same way that they have comforted us. But most importantly, suffering invites us into the very presence of God, unifying our heart when we share in the suffering of our Savior as our life is forged together with the suffering of Christ. Because he doesn't watch us from a distance. He doesn't abandon us in our pain. He enters into our suffering with us. He will hold us fast. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word that we need to hear, especially during times of suffering. Presence rests upon us. That you will accomplish good even from some of the most difficult, darkest moments in our life. It's part of the miracle of redemption that takes place every single day. We cling to that truth. And Lord, we're reminded this morning about the importance of who we are as your household, your people who uphold the banner of your truth by which you will judge the world. And may we not compromise anything that would mislead someone to a wrong understanding of what it means to find salvation through faith in Christ alone. Father, thank you for your promise to, to hold us, to secure us. You are our shelter. In you, we will not be greatly shaken. We pray this in your name.